Big fleas have smaller fleas upon their backs to bite them. And these in turn have smaller fleas, and so ad infinitum. And larger fleas have larger fleas, and larger fleas to go on, and these in turn have larger fleas, and larger fleas, and so on. Jonathan Swift. Hello and welcome back, everybody. This is the Flea Podcast. No, I'm just kidding. I'm Ryan Whitley. I'm Jessica Berg. And I'm Damian Smith. And we are Whiskey in the Weird. It's season two, and we're excited this season to be talking about crawling horror, creeping tales of the insect weird, edited by Daisy Butcher and Jeanette Leaf. It is, of course, a part of the British Library's Tales of the Weird series, which collects weird stories of yesteryear from mostly obscure authors and compiles them according to a theme. Each season will bring you an exploration of a different book in the series, and each episode will tackle one of the stories in a full spoiler sort of way. Jess is our master story planner, so Jess, what's on the docket tonight? We are reading The Wicked Flea by J.U. Yeezy. Excellent. However, before we get to that, we've got some bar talk to do. Jess, what are you drinking tonight? Okay, bad news. I am drinking the Natter Jack again that I bought because it had a big toad on it. Um, And it's just not very good. I will finish it off, but I think it's going to become maybe a mixing whiskey and not necessarily a drinking whiskey. What Um, a derogatory term. It's going to end up being garbage mixing whiskey. It's like, (laughs) you know, there are really good mixing cocktails or whiskey cocktails. Your sense of loyalty to bad drinks is (laughs) astonishing. Well, keep in mind, like, I'm not a particularly, like, picky drinker either. Just like, I can, I can drink it and it's fine i just don't appreciate it it's entirely possible that i maybe just don't like irish whiskey uh that, that could be because that, I that's haven't the had case a lot, for me right so it just is a little bit like artificially sweet that i think would be okay in a mixed drink versus just kind of sipping it um with ice not well, my I mean, when you when you're mixing you could do more tricks to kind of cut that sweetness there's no doubt yes I appreciate um, your stick to itiveness, however. Well, what am I not finish the bottle? Let's be right. realistic. Um, but I am actually I just finished a really, really good book called Build Your House Around My Body. It was suggested to me by mm. a friend. Um, it's a 2021 novel by Violet Cooper Smith. And it is a creepy, atmospheric, um, like Vietnamese ghost story with these very interesting like family dynamic skipping around in time. It's about a couple of missing women and how their timelines kind of like intertwine and their families connect. Um, It's really, really good. It's sad, but the writing is also really, really funny. Um, It's just kind of a big mishmash of a lot of things that goes together really, really well. It's got a great title. Yeah. And a really like stunning cover too. D, how about you? What do you got going on? Labels and covers. We know what Jess's Achilles tendon is. (laughs) Uh, As far as what I'm drinking tonight, actually, in honor of the fact that we are discussing things that make me laugh because the story was very funny, I am drinking the most hilariously named bourbon whiskey, Chicken Cock. Uh, It is a little on the sweeter side. I don't think it would be Jessica's bag. Um, You would say that. (laughs) (laughs) That sweet, sweet Chicken Cock. Uh, But what what you'll notice about this is if you are a fan of more of those vanilla forward kind of honey sweet whiskeys, uh, there's no real bite to this. Uh, I don't get a big punch of rye. I kind of get almost like a buttery corn 
which is pretty common with whiskey. You're going to find the corn uh, flavor, but this has that butteriness. So I would call it a Chardonnay of whiskeys. It's good. Uh, you don't need, I would probably suggest drinking it neat because any water is going to change it pretty drastically and, and bring out even more of that sweetness. It's okay. It's got some history and it's got a hilarious name. I don't think it's necessarily my bag, but it's, it's not, it's, it's not so, yeah, night of mediocre, night of mediocre, night of mediocre. Let it be known, friends, far and wide, chicken cock is not Damien's bag. (laughs) That should have been the quote. Uh, Yeah, I mean, give it a try, though. I think, I think it's decent. It's just nothing that's really going to. Nobody out there, I think, would say my favorite whiskey is chicken cock. Yes, fair. And <laughs> that's, the, that's the quote right there. I'm selling bumper stickers. Find it on our merch page. Uh, <laughs> and as far as uh, things that I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying that aren't this lovely series is I just watched uh, Saint Maud and terrific. Ooh. Yeah, it's really, really phenomenal. It it takes a wholly, I felt, fairly original play on on religious based horror and ill perceptions of people and p- the, the potential of mental illness and how that manifests itself. And I thought it was just an incredibly well done film up to the very, very last second of the movie. very end. And uh, so yeah. be sure to watch it <laughs> oh, with yeah. your eyes open. This isn't a background movie. There's so many little nuggets to pick out. And I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. So again, uh, St. Maud. Well, tonight uh, I move into the Speyside region of Scotland, and I am drinking the Tom and Towel 16-year-old whiskey. This is uh, a lovely whiskey, and uh, Tom and Towel is mostly, well, at least in the in the past, was mostly a whiskey that went into a lot of different blends. But in the last uh, uh, 10, 12, 15 years, I guess, they have been producing single malts. Um, and I was uh, glad enough to be able to grab one of the 16-year-old variety. Uh, it has uh, a sense of heather to it, a nice nose, a lingering palate, and a finish that doesn't overstay its welcome. So I really, really enjoy it. Um, Shudder released a documentary recently about folk horror, and I started to watch it, and I stopped because I decided I wanted to watch more folk horror first. Folk horror is not, not hmm. my normal horror subgenre. So uh, in addition to releasing this documentary, they also released a bunch of old folk horror films on Shudder. So if you've got Shudder, it's a great time to catch up on some folk horror. So I picked one that seemed to be one that everybody had talked about quite a lot called the Blood on Satan's Claw from 1971. Have either of you seen this? I have I've, not. I've heard of it. I haven't seen it's it. A, it's a medieval setting in England in a rural village where a bunch of uh, really horny teenagers start worshiping the devil because uh, he allows <laughs> them to screw in the woods. Sure. Encourages it, in fact. And um, it's, it's, well, it's either good. the devil. It's either the devil or like a, a hippie couple. It's one of the two. Yeah. Well, hippies hadn't come around just yet. They're about 300 years off from from what I can tell. <laughs> Maybe they're just really good at hiding in the woods. Maybe they're really good at hiding in the woods. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, it's one of these movies that, that lingers with you. And um, I'm still thinking about it. I don't know whether I liked it well enough to recommend it to everybody. I, I get the same vibe from it that I got from The Witch. Which was like, oh, this is a really good movie, but I don't know that I care for it. Okay. But I might want to watch it again. I don't know. Got the same feeling from the blood on Satan's claw. So it's a All really right. popular one with fans. I know that I probably just pissed off a whole lot of people. <laughs> but hey, this good. is Send my us your hate. We'll give you our social <laughs> handles at the end of the show. <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, tonight we are discussing The Wicked Flea by J.U. Geezy, as Jessica said. That stands for John Ulrich, who was born in Chillicothe, I may have mispronounced that, Ohio, on August the 6th of 1877 to William Summers. Now we have have, uh, people who love the blood on Satan's claw and also all the Chillicotheans that are going to be hating us. We're just, we're racking up the haters tonight. I'm safe, I think, going out on a limb and mispronouncing Chillicothe. Bring yeah. on Chillicotheans. <laughs> As I was saying, uh, John Ulrich Giese's parents are William Summers and Anna Kate Hutton Giese. In 1898, he graduated from the Starling Medical College in Columbus, Ohio, which still exists today as a part of the Ohio State University system. His parents had moved to Salt Lake City by the time he graduated, and so Giese at the age of 21, set up his first medical practice in Salt Lake. Irritated by the poor quality of Pulp Fiction stories, he began to write his own at the encouragement of his wife. Based on my research, this was not an uncommon way to get one start in writing fiction. Both Edgar Rice Burroughs and James Fenimore Cooper also remarked, this stuff sucks, which (laughs) prompted them to write their own material. It's a direct quote. Yep. It's the way legends are born, really. (laughs) Geezy began writing and selling occult detective stories about two years after our old friend William Hope Hodgson published his first Karnacki the Ghost Finder story. But how much of an influence this was on Geezy is impossible (laughs) to know. Probably a lot. More important to the history of the pulp, Geezy was one of the earliest and best contributors to the sword and planet style of story popularized by Burroughs's John Carter on Mars series of stories. All right. I watched that movie a couple years ago. It was better than I, than I thought it was going to be. I had fun with it. Geezy's character was called Jason Croft. And our story today features another of Geezy's serial characters, the mad scientist, Professor Xenophon Xerxes. The Wicked Flea won the cover spot for the October 1925 issue of weird tales. And apparently it was a controversial choice. So we have to stop here and talk about weird tales for a second because it was the absolute paragon of weird fiction magazines. And I'm a little surprised to be honest that we haven't encountered it before now. Founded by J.C. Henenberger and J.M. Lansinger in 1922, Weird Tales has had an up and down history, but throughout its heyday published the biggest names in weird fiction. Howard Phillips Lovecraft, Robert Irvin Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, C. Barry Quinn, Robert Block, Michael Moorcock, and many more. Under the editorship of Farnsworth Wright, among others, Farnsworth Wright was its longest-lasting editor. It's experienced several extended breaks in publication, but is still going today, though how strongly is an open question. I first encountered it when I subscribed during Anne Vandermeer's editorship, and I even have a personalized rejection letter from her for a story oh. I submitted. Well done. <laughs> a rejection from Anne Vandermeer is, is a prized possession. Well, currently, uh, best-selling horror author Jonathan Mayberry is making a run at it with Weird Tales, but only one issue has been released since he took the reins in 2019. That said, it was a stellar issue featuring an amazing Lovecraftian story by Victor Laval called Up From Slavery, 
that would go on to win the Stoker Award for long fiction that year. To know that Gizzi had several stories in Weird Tales puts him in vaunted company, and we'll see if he's up to the task. Six of his stories made it to the big screen, chiefly The Matrimaniac, starring Douglas Fairbanks and Constance Talmadge, about a young couple eloping that goes horribly and comedically wrong. Gizzi died on September the 8th, 1947 in Salt Lake City, survived only by his wife, Juliet. And that is John Ulrich Gizzi. Jess, what's this story about tonight? Oh, man, a bunch of stuff, mostly a big flea. Our story opens with Professor Xenophon Xerxes Zapt asking, what is life? Zapt is sitting in his living room with Bob, his daughter's fiance. Bob is just trying to enjoy a jazz record and is instead is sucked into a conversation about vibrations and jazz music and life. Zapt is pretty insulting to Bob during the whole conversation. And when Zapt's daughter Nellie joins in, you learn that she's just been sitting in the room with them the whole time. And it's a little weird. She does not defend her fiance at all. (laughs) She really does not have much to add. So Zap keeps being a jerk to Bob, who isn't quite following the conversation that frankly doesn't make a lot of sense anyway. Um, it's very funny. And eventually Zap declares that it would be possible to follow all of his nonsense ideas to their logical conclusion and make a giant flea. Because it's a Naturally. weird- Naturally. Right, of obviously. course. Yes, one Jazz does. Jazz music, vibration, fleas. Where Flea. else are you going to go with that? Enormous so, ones. <laughs> because it's a really weird idea, Bob makes a joke. Nellie makes a joke. Zapt gets mad and leaves. Nellie gets mad at Bob for making her dad mad, even though her dad seems nuts. And they were both joking about giant fleas. Uh, it's super weird family dynamic uh, in the first couple pages. The next evening, Nellie tells Bob that she saw her dad coaxing the neighbor dog into a garage. And for whatever reason, they both immediately know that this means he's taking the idea of growing giant fleas seriously enough to try to get fleas off of the dog. Nellie's biggest concern is that he's going to use her pet cat to feed the giant fleas, which turns out to be a super realistic worry because, of course, he's experimented on her cat before. He's not a very good guy or dad or scientist, really. <laughs> but Bob, oh, he's a pretty good scientist, I would say. <laughs> I mean, not a very responsible scientist, as we will Fair. See. Two different things. Effective, (laughs) responsible. So Bob and Nellie are sitting around horrifying each other, trying to imagine and describe what the giant flea would look like, what it would eat, what would happen if it got loose. Uh, Bob makes a few more jokes. Nellie gets mad again. And then he calls her my child, which is actually probably the creepiest thing about the scene. Uh, Bob has to leave town for a few days for work. And when he's back... Nellie tells them that it seems like they were right about Zap creating giant fleas because he's been having Nellie buy beef. Yesterday, they went through four pounds of meat. Uh, They pluck a flea off of Nellie's cat, who's been acting a little strangely. It's about the size of a wood tick. So bigger than a regular flea, nothing super alarming yet. Bob smushes the flea and they head up to the lab to find the professor. So Zapt lets them in, but isn't impressed with the dead flea because he's been growing even bigger fleas since that one escaped. They are feeding on a pile of beef in a glass case that has a big metal tube running through it. 
Zap explains that he's been experimenting on the vibrations, but also on food and vitamins to grow these gross, gross bugs <laughs> as big as he can. Obviously, Remember, kids, eat your vitamins. <laughs> oh, obviously, he is just getting started. An unspecified amount of time later, Zapt calls them back up to his lab. And during their last visit, there'd been a couple dozen pretty large fleas in this glass case. Now there's just one named Polex. The flea is so big that it is almost pressing against the glass of the case. It's also just staring at them. Nellie seems to be the only one appropriately horrified by this creepy monster. And Zap demands that Nellie leave because women have no scientific appreciation. Ooh. <laughs> so obviously, Polex, the giant flea, escapes. The cat corners the flea in the living room. And when Bob tries to rescue the cat, the flea jumps at him and tries to attack him. It misses Bob, but the flea notices that there's an open window and it chews through the screen to escape. Gross. The trio head outside to try to catch the flea with a broom and a hose. Uh, hijinks ensue. They spray each other with the hose. The flea escapes into the neighborhood. Now we get the perspective of Officer Dan, who is meeting with the Browns, who tell him that they saw a giant flea chase their dog. They know how it sounds, but they know what they saw. Officer Dan thanks them for making a report, but since it's not there now, there's not really much he can do. Of course, that's when we hear a scream from outside. A couple has been attacked by a toad. They don't think it was a flea. That's crazy. It was too big. It was as big as a scuttle of coal. Uh, I had to look that up. It is just a sort of big bucket. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I didn't know what the unit of scuttle was. Just bucket. Now um, we do. <laughs> another officer shows up. He is responding to another report of a bite. And they decide to go with my favorite strategy of kill anything weird. Dan sees something in the shadows, can't figure out what it is, so he shoots it. <laughs> Meanwhile, Nellie, Zapt, and Bob are just chilling inside and hear a gunshot. They run outside towards the gunshot, because why not? Uh, Officer Dan informs them that he shot a funny-looking son of a devil. He explains what's been going on, dogs being chased, people being bitten, and our professor is thrilled. He thinks it's great that the flea chased the dog because that's the dog the flea came off of. Uh, he explains his scientific process to Officer Dan, who seems a little confused and horrified about everything. Zapt pays him off for his trouble. Officer Dan wanders over to a phone booth to update the police station. He explains that, yep, it was a giant flea. But when he mentions Zapt, everyone understands. <laughs> End of story. This one's a little different. Isn't it so wacky? <laughs> Our normal fare, wacky, wacky, comedy, hijinks. What'd you guys think? I mean, as far as entertaining stories go, I was cracking up. It was wholly unexpected. It was very silly. Anything very from silly. the anything from the pithy dialogue at the very beginning, you know, equating jazz, the, the science behind jazz, and why you either love it or hate it. Uh, up through the interactions with this flea somewhat disbelieving <laughs> up through the very Irish cop who decides to shoot it because in to quote Jess, he doesn't understand it. I mean, the thing, it was just funny. It was just a really funny story. 
which begs the question, how the heck did it get into this <laughs> collection? Well, okay, so it was really funny, but it also was the grossest story we've had so far, right? Like, they're describing yeah, these fleas yeah. eating meat. The flea, like, every time they describe it, it's, like, pulsating, and, like, they just think it's a bald cat at some point. They think it's Well, yeah, I mean, toad. think about it. Like, that's fair. It's funny. It's funny to us, but if you really saw a flea the size of a dog, it would be disgusting. Right. And scary. But it's, it's hard. It's hard to animal. It's hard to be scary when it's got that Ed Wood vibe going through. You know, <laughs> it's just it's. So I don't know. I mean, I, I see exactly what you're saying. And yes, but it's up against two moths at this right. stage. So yeah. <laughs> I think I think I, I think I think a tuna fish sandwich would be grosser than those insects. To, to yeah, be, the moths were just around. But oh. I really I really enjoyed the story. I thought it was a lot of fun to read. I, I thought it was fun too. I, th- I think I can appreciate why it was chosen for the for the collection at the same time that I can see how some readers would be scratching their heads going, what is this doing here? Right. I mean, I mean, I get it. I understand because of the grotesqueness of the concept of this cannibalistic hyper growing flea that seems <laughs> to be growing as it's running around and escaping, which, you know, puts it in the mutagenic category. Uh, so kind of going back to the Ed Wood film genre. There's there's an entire space that could be classified as horror. And so, yeah, I see where it comes from. But everything else about the story was incredibly, incredibly funny. It's And it's not written as horror at all. Yeah. No, not at all. Yeah. yeah. No. So were either of you endeared to the character of Professor Zapped or no. did you struggle to connect to him? <laughs> you get the sense that you're supposed to feel like he's kind of the lovable goofball character. If you had gone into this reading it as a series right if he's a recurring character Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and maybe you had something that convinced you he was slightly more lovable than just the antics in this story maybe but in this one he's just kind of like a jerk to his future son-in-law super dismissive of his daughter like funny but in a really annoying way like a very self-righteous like oh you do not understand right, how right. I got women from have dad. no place in science. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not my favorite character that we've encountered so far. Yeah. The misogyny could have overlooked if he were a little, if he would have been a little more zany. You're like, oh, that kooky, like Doc Brownie, you know, but he wasn't. He was just sort of mean spirited, it seemed. And he, he was like science at all costs. Uh, I honestly expected to find just an element of horror that when he plucked that dog into the room or whatever, that it would end up being discovered, you know, like dismembered or being fed to the whatever and to the fleas. But it wasn't. So that's fine. It, I but 100% she was- agree. <laughs> She With was Jess. worried, yeah, that that's what was going to happen to her cat. Oh, she yeah, was totally, like, oh, totally. Oh, my God, he's going to feed my cat to these fleas because he's been <laughs> doing experiments on the cat before. It's just like, that's not. In the pursuits of science. Think. In the pursuits of science. But I do agree with Jess 100% that I think if you would have read more of the series and that this was the last of the mm-hmm. zapped uh, yeah. uh, novellas or whatever, that you probably would have a bigger soft spot for him jumping right into the Wicked Flea. Yeah, he just came across as sort of a conjure. I completely pictured him as Rick Moranis from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. That was oh, see, the- I saw him zanier. I saw him as like a Doc Brown. No, that was my that was my picture the whole time was sort of lovable goofball. I, I, I didn't like him because of the some of the horrible things he said. At the same time, <laughs> I suspect that some of the horrible things he said were what endeared him to his readers right. oh, sure. in the original publications, funny. right? Yeah. I mean, misogyny <laughs> is all over the pulps. Um, 
and and as a as a recurring character, you know, recurring characters were just the gold mine for these pulp writers. If they could craft a character that readers would want to read multiple stories of, and therefore magazines would buy multiple stories of, then they're putting food on their table in a pretty regular way. Yeah. And that's what they loved. And so there's 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 all over the pulps, there are these stories where there's like two or three stories with with one character. And you know what's happening there is the author is trying to find right. the character that's going to be their, their meal ticket, right? Mm-hmm. Robert Howard wrote a couple of stories with a guy named Cull the Conqueror that very few people other than super fans <laughs> of Robert Howard have heard of. Uh, kind of a brooding philosopher king on the Isle of Atlantis. Um, that doesn't go as well as he thinks it it should have. So he cans call and comes up with the marauding barbarian Conan. Boom! Right, did it. Right. Many <laughs> similarities between Cull and Conan, but uh, but Conan was the character that won out. I I suspect Gizzi's trying to do the same thing here with Xenophon Xerxes. Um, that that said. Uh, Either of you interested in following up on the other pieces in the Xenophon Xerxes canon? I kind of am because <laughs> because one, I want to I want to fall in love with the lovable zany Xenophon Xerxes apt, but also I just I thought that this was a really clever, you know, silly, fun, lighthearted, even with a little bit of a dark scientific vein to it tale and so i wouldn't mind reading more of these it's not like it's a heavy lift right these are no right. it's like a sitcom right this yeah is a exactly quick read, exactly not a lot of brain power a couple laughs fill in the blanks yeah yeah <laughs> well and we've talked about this already a little bit but even though this is co- our comedy the concept is actually kind of terrifying the whole giant flea and all especially when you start to take into account the the physics of such a thing if if a flea can jump this far when it's regular sized, how far could it jump in real life when it's giant sized? It's launching itself from from Tampa to San Francisco in one bound. <laughs> um, so, but, but this this prompts me to ask, and I think that everyone can see this question coming. What's more terrifying, one giant flea that can eat your dog, or a bunch of tiny fleas that drive you nuts? Oh man, it is the bunch of tiny fleas. So I've worked in animal rescue and head of a jillion pets and lived in some real gross apartments in my lifetime. And when you have like bugs or you see bugs and you can't tell if you've gotten them all or you have an animal come in and it's got fleas and it's just like you have to flea treat them multiple times. It's so gross. With one flea, you can tell if it's dead, if it's giant. You can shoot it. Yeah, yeah, I can just shoot it. <laughs> hey, but it can bite your ankle. Got... <laughs> sure. But yeah. If you've got a whole swarm of them, like you could just never really be sure that you've gotten them all. And that's so gross. Yeah, wholeheartedly. And even the concept of like seeing one regular flea or one regular cockroach or one regular mouse, you know that there are more never right, hidden right. everywhere. Mouse. Exactly. But if you see one <laughs> giant flea, you're like, Right, it's very hard for a, a swarm of giant fleas to really tuck itself away in the cupboard. So I'm pretty sure I'm looking at a one-time opponent. Right, I got yeah. it. Yeah, Unless you've got really it's, big cupboards. It's done, yeah. My crawl space is just swimming with giant frog size. Or what is it? Scuttle? Scuttle of coal size uh, fleas? Size. 
<laughs> I, I got to agree. And, and I, I don't know, um, not being an entomologist, are fleas the same thing as bed bugs or are those different No, animals? totally different. Totally different. Okay, totally different. So I was going to make an allusion to like how all the all the fleas that are the bed bugs would be terrible, but um, that's obviously misplaced. Yeah, Still, I don't think they're functionally different. I think they're just different. Large animals. numbers of <laughs> biting insects are 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 not fun. There's a comment made in the intro to this story, and I just want to pause there and say that I love the intros to all of these stories. I love these the sense of uh, the bringing intros the reader along. Right. It's either the intros or the end where it's accompanied by a little illustration. So that's terrific. But in the intro to this story, Butcher and Leaf, our editors allude that this story could be a satire. And I was wondering if either of you had any guesses what this story might be satirizing. Because hmm. I don't. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I the know. obvious one is science, right? The scientist who knows all and knows everything and they're going to make the best okay. decisions possible, right? Obviously, they're not. There is a fair amount of human collateral, even just from this one gross flea. Uh, I mm-hmm, think you mm-hmm. probably see that with a lot of scientific conventions, but you also just usually hear the good news or the end results, not the the process that got you there. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe the rise of communism. <laughs> rise of communism. The red threat. No. Well, I was <laughs> I was trying to think of this in the context of like the uh, movies in the 1950s of the giant bugs, um, mm-hmm, you know, the mm-hmm. fear of radiation and reaction to atomic bombs. The you, know, you get Godzilla, you get giant tarantulas. Yeah. Um, this one, there's enough references to like vitamins and that kind of thing. Like this is around the time when vitamins were being discovered and sort of interesting. Okay, kind of we're breaking down what actually creates life, right? These are right, the building right. blocks of the things you need to be alive. So there could be some connection in there, right? We go from fearing vitamins that will create giant monsters to fearing atomic bombs that will create giant mm-hmm. monsters. Just sort of- or Maybe maybe Gisi's like poking fun at Mary Shelley and the concept that electricity could, you know, have some massive effect on living tissue or whatever. He goes from being somewhat sarcastic at the beginning, talking about the effect that jazz based on its like erratic vibrations that it causes when you're listening to it to have some, you know, cathartic effect to the listener and then says, okay, so I'm going to just run some electricity through this cage and because I'm using (laughs) the reverse polarity. Yeah. yeah, It's going to cause this excessive, like almost mutant growth. So it could have been interesting. Yeah. A little dig on like literary monsters and how someone just decides to take it to the neighborhood level. I'm not sure. Yeah. If, if it was written a little bit later than it was, I could see it as kind of an atomic age fear story. Sure. Right. It's, it's, just, it's just too for early that. for that. Yeah. It's just too a bit. early for that. I mean, maybe it's a story about how jazz will turn you into a giant monster. <laughs> the evils of jazz. Yeah. You know, it is, it is in the heyday of, of, uh, of early American jazz. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, I loved in the introduction to the reference to other louse literature that had me cracking up even before I got to the text of the story. Come on, you're not a, Leaf, you don't follow Louse Louse Lit. I'm in know, like seven uh, different uh, subreddits. It's, it's not a subreddit that I'm that I'm subscribed to. Louse Lit. Uh, although I think Damien, you should start it. You should okay, start Louse Lit subreddit tonight. Uh, there are two entries aside from this, at least according to our editors. John Dunn's The Flea, which oh, is yeah. a very horny poem that we we read a little bit out of before so we got started tonight recording. It's uh, a great poem. 
Uh, really a lot fired of people us studied up. it in high school. Yeah, it did. Got it us did. feeling lousy. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I'm here all night, folks. Thank you. Thank you. And then the Scottish poet Robert Burns, To a Louse, in which he admonishes a flea he saw on a lady's bonnet in church to, quote, get somewhere else and seek your dinner, and denounces it a <laughs> colon fairly and a cursed oh. lusty. Whoa. Now, All right. apologies to our Scottish listeners. <laughs> apologies to our Scottish. <laughs> actually, actually not. I'm drinking. I'm drinking your whiskey. So I, I appreciated the uh, the allusion to other Laos literature. It's important, you know. You got to. I don't uh, think there's I mean, another, relatively speaking, to this story. Yes. Yeah, I don't think there's another one in this collection of blood sucking, creepy little bugs. Well, what did you guys think about the writing? It read as good weird pulp. I think you covered it in you know, going through about where it was published and everything. It just, it came across as being so easily digestible, sort of bucking and possibly a bit satirical. And maybe that's Mm -hmm. why it was stickier than it it needed to be. But I like the writing. I like the silliness. I like the fact that he wrote phonetically the brogue of the Irish. Very popular way of doing that. I mean, but I did have to, I did have to take pause and go back and I found myself reading it out loud just so when I was hearing it phonetically, you know, in the air. And I think it also helped me to polish up on my, my Irish accent. Um, I mean, this is going to sound really geeky and perhaps that's because it is, but the history of how dialect appears in literature is more interesting than it deserves to be when it comes in, when it falls out. (laughs) All right. So that's the subject of my new solo podcast, folks. (laughs) Right. Download now again, wherever with podcasts are. With an Irish are accent the entire time. <laughs> well, if it's half as good as a Scottish accent, then uh, yeah. we're in for a treat. <laughs> uh, Jess, how did you feel about the story? I thought the writing was really good. I thought the dialogue was very snappy and funny in a way that, yeah, it was super readable. Like you can just kind of very go snappy. right through it. When you get to the police officer, I did have to read parts of it out loud. I was just like, I right. cannot even imagine what this word could be. But I usually <laughs> got it, I think. <laughs> I also really appreciated the descriptions of how gross the fleas were. I mean, we haven't yeah. had a lot of grossness yet. And right. describing this one giant flea, like, pressed up against the glass case that it's being kept in like staring at them as they're staring at it. Hilarious. Gross. I enjoyed the writing too. I thought it moved along and, and I particularly appreciated certain literary flourishes that he put in there. Uh, like this one on page 189. I am not prone to idly employ those variant vibratory fluctuations of the vocal organs, briefly designated speech. Mm-hmm. I love alliteration. I think that's a fun one. <laughs> And then, and then this was funny too. On page two hundred three, at the bottom and top of two hundred four, he's a wicked flea. But this time, there's a man going to pursue him. So mm. an allusion back to the epitaph, epigraph, the poem at the beginning before we get to the text of the story, whatever preamble. it may be called. Uh, I thought, I thought uh, good. <laughs> the preamble, yeah, the prologue. I thought the writing in general was more literary tremendum rather than irritans. Oh, look at this guy. I also had fun because I learned a new word. Tell me you knew, and I'll call you a liar, on page 200, what the word Brobdingnagian meant. I did know that because it is liar. the opposite of, I, it is the opposite of <laughs> Lilliputian. Uh, Brob, Brobdingnagian is the other island 
that Gulliver went to where everyone was massive and it was Brobdignag. And so Lilliputian refers to things of diminutive size and Brobdignagian refers to things of very large size. Damien, I'm impressed by that because I was like, what is this word? It means gigantic. And, and it's, as you, as you say, the opposite of Lilliputian. It's, it's popular in pub trivia. I think if you end up okay. being a regular oh, in any sort of pub trivia, yeah, someone tracks. asks a question about that and they ask about the origin or something. So it is something that you pick up if you're into trivia. Well, our listeners are going to rake it in in the trivia right. games this week. <laughs> that, 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 one's, that one's free, folks. Uh, there was another interesting line, and this sent me down a, a way too deep internet rabbit hole. Uh, on page 193 was a moral reference to women's bathing suits and i had to, piece. I, wanted, I want right i wanted to look it up cuz it said it said something about how a one piece it, it made an allusion to a one piece bathing suit being immodest and i was like what yes. is, what does that mean by that let me tell you there was a time when the one piece bathing suit was so scandalous the history of women's swimwear is fascinating the, the most fascinating part was uh, about 50 or 60 years before the story was, was written, women would get into a wooden box on a cart that was right. drawn by a horse. Here we go. Backed into the water where they would change <laughs> in the box and then get out into the water through the back door so that nobody would see them until they were in the water. And when they right, were ready so they to were get under out, the water. Right, until they were under the water. Right. And they're, they're, in a, they're in a full like Victorian gown. And then when they're ready to get out, they got to get back in the box and get changed. Which, of Hilarious. course, is how we got the term dressage for the controlled movement of a horse, because this same horse needed to be trained to walk backwards and forwards, which is not normal for horses, which is how the term dressage came to be. I can't tell if you're making that up or not, but if 100% made up, but it sounds completely <laughs> it viable. sounded so good. Yeah. It sounded so good. Well, probe uh, Nagian, I actually knew no, that we'll I totally that made one. up, but I'm going to, I'm going to hope that that's true. I'm going to, uh, that's cross a, my well, it's a magnificent description really. So from that to, to these really elaborate swimming gowns, to as as the as fabric new fabrics were developed to shorter tighter more form fitting bathing suits were invented and that's when the one piece comes around and it's a scandal because it would show most of the leg below the knee right it's Ooh. that old timey thing that looks like the little o overalls like the stripy right. overalls right which is yeah. also like what the dudes would wear so i think that was probably part of it is the ladies are showing as much skin as the dudes Awful. So an, an author recently posted on Twitter that they wished other genres besides the supernatural would become vehicles for weird fiction. Specifically, he referenced weird romance and weird memoir. How do you think comedy worked here as a vehicle for the weird? I think it worked. I think it worked. And when you look at, you know, modern weirdos that are doing films like Tim Burton folding in science fiction and Mars Attacks. It, it works. It's a great, it is a perfect channel and also a bit satirical. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of my favorites, Tim Burton's Legend of Sleepy Hollow is very funny. It is. Right. It is actually right. a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of dark humor in that. And when you, when you parallel that in, in that case, I mean, it's pretty ultra violent as well. This didn't right. have that same violence, but it had a lot of the grotesquery, right? Ask the and flea. It had, and it had an ankle biting yeah. flea. This didn't have <laughs> so, any violence. The flea was, the was shot. I mean, blood. I think, yeah, but we didn't get any gore, you know, and who knows? Did, did anyone see the flea's body? Oh, yeah, they did. They did. <laughs> yeah, I actually. think so. Okay. Yeah. They, they picked it up. The Wicked Flea they, Part they, 2. They actively dissected it. Revenge um, of the Flea. 
No, but I mean, to answer a question, long answer, short question. Yes, I think that <laughs> comedy c- comedy could be a good vehicle. Weird comedy could be a very good vehicle. So I saw this tweet also and thought about it. And my thought was that these things do exist, right? There is weird romance. Right. There is weird. But because weird has to be an element of something, it's automatically going to get folded into a genre, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a weird romance, it's because there's a monster in it. So now it's horror romance instead right. of romance horror. Who was right? the who was the author a couple of years back that did all all the like Pride and Prejudice and zombies and you know oh that series like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Killer yeah there was there was an attempt Sense at and that. Sensibility and Sea Monsters I think was right, one right did but anybody the, actually read them or were they just or the covers uh, just funny I know a couple uh, of them yeah. got turned into movies. Also, oh, like dude. I think there's an yeah, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies got turned into movies. I know that for a fact, and so did, did Abraham Abe Lincoln, Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Too? Yeah, oh, yeah, but as you can imagine, like I'm, I'm pretty sure they were fiction, fairly yeah. terrible. Yeah, fairly terrible movies. <laughs> and I, I would have to venture to say it wasn't one author because they were basically taken uh, public domain stories. Yeah, I think right. it was multiple and, people. I mean, they just had carte blanche to be able to do whatever they wanted with it. And so it seemed to be an easy way to rewrite a, a classic and just like. But even then, if you're putting zombies in Pride and Prejudice, it's no longer a romance with zombies. It's zombies with romance. Like, I think the weird goes in front of it no matter what. So, yeah. So when then, if you're, putting, if you're putting elements of the weird into other kinds of fiction, say even just literary fiction, um, and here we're, we're parsing subgenres uh, <laughs> that don't, don't necessarily need to have that happen to them. Um, but what's then the difference between weird fiction and say magical realism, like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Juno Diaz, China Mieville to bring in a more modern person. Uh, I, I would have to say that there doesn't have to be because when you use such a all encompassing term, like weird, I, if you talk cosmic car, I mean, people are going to kind of narrow it down. If you talk mm-hmm. about weird fiction, all of a sudden it takes on this breadth and a, a number of branches that is sort of hard to contain, nor does it need to. I mean, what is the element of some, what makes something weird? It's, it's quirky, right? It's, it's abnormal. It's slightly off. So does magical realism fall under the realm of weird? Yeah, I would yeah, say sure. So. Why yeah. not? Yeah, exactly. Does sci-fi, does steampunk, does, you know, do anime timelines, do any sort of fantasy? I think all that could be. The, the, the problem is, is that I think it's becoming like a, a term du jour that it just be become something well it's a marketing term is what it yeah. is it yeah. sells books exactly yeah. exactly because but you it, could take, it is popular and it is kind of hot right now so you, you could take borges's collected short works right and you could file that under literary fiction you could file that under horror you could file that under magical realism you could mm-hmm. file it under weird you could file some of it under science fiction but you got to put it somewhere yeah and be, because he's an older writer he gets filed under literary fiction instead right. Stephen King filed under horror. I mean, I mean, Stephen King, no matter what he writes, people are going to see it as horror, but he's written more like he's crime written a and lot noir of novels horror, right? in recent years than anything horrific. So you're going to get the labels that stick. And right now, it's I, I think it's just sort of buzzy to put weird in front of whatever your genre is they're writing to. All right. Well, we've got to come to the end. And so what did you think of the ending with Officer McGinnis, the execution <laughs> of Pulex? And dialect writing. He was so misunderstood. Young Pulix. I knew thee well. <laughs> alas, I poor li- P- <laughs> Yes, Alas, <laughs> poor Pulix. I liked the super abrupt, the officer calls to give an update. Yeah, agreed. And he's just like, oh, God, it's just this professor's thing. And everyone's just like, okay, come back. We get it. 
Like this yeah, is it was it was like wrapping up a sitcom <laughs> episode. It was just like DVD really what it was. Yeah. Right, yeah. you can see the like cop in the phone booth, and then suddenly there's a freeze frame and a little wacky music, and then a applause <laughs> as we go like, go to credits. Yeah, the, the free, or he's like sitting there in a diner, just eating a waffle as the production credits roll. And he's just like, yes, oh, exactly. Okay, well, good episode. <laughs> that was also where you realize, like, okay, yes, this is part of a bigger series. We're just reading this one part of it. This is right, a known right. character in town. Like, yeah. it's entirely possible that like we've met the dog before. We understand why the or some of yeah some of these people could be sure. returning mm-hmm. characters. Yeah, the yeah, daughter is worried about her cat. It could have been experimented on in a previous story. And that was just a right. callback to something that we didn't right. read. Well, Damien will tell us next episode. I'll read the entire XXZ series. Yeah. <laughs> what about the dialect? Because there was the sudden inclusion of the Irish brogue at the end. I had to read it out loud, but I think it definitely lent a lot of fun to the character. And it helped you to sort of embrace and identify with him very quickly because you had to speak through his mouth, honestly. If you weren't used to reading a lot of literary dialects. Right. Uh, and so I think that the, I that, that was interesting, although it was a little cumbersome. I think it took a little bit of the flow out. Yeah, I had sometimes... to read it out loud. It just it took a second to be like, okay, we've been following these three characters yes. through now 75% that, now here's this of new this. guy. Right. Now yeah. it's a shift, but you immediately see how it ties back. It just it it right. took a second to kind of adjust to be like, okay, who is this? What is he talking about? I think He's talking to another officer and they're trying to figure out if the lady who called in is crazy or not. Yeah. Like, hey, do you want to go to her house and figure out if she's mm-hmm. crazy? This is what she said. And you're just like, oh, okay. I understand what is happening. It's just <laughs> different characters, different, completely different tone. So this question is almost an unfair one for this story, but did the scare hold up? And I'll let you interpret the question any way you want to for your answer. Okay. So this was, when was this written? 1918? 1925. Okay. 1925. For all intents and purposes and the amount of scare that was actually intended by the author, I think that most of the elements held up because it was written to a time that essentially permitted this sort of June Cleaver interaction, like the misogyny not only was <laughs> not only was placed because of the timing of it, it, it seemed pretty uh, realistic, but because it was also this like, oh, I'm home from work, dear. And it kind of carried this vibe that it was it was very leave it to beaver. And so because of that, then you put in this giant mutant flea. It gives it that weirdness that we were talking about. I think all those elements held up pretty well for the same reason that I enjoy things like Mars attacks and everything. It's just that, that cheeky sci-fi, you know, weird science. And a retro-y. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it works. It works for me. I, I think the weird scientist always kind of holds up. That's something that no matter what you can kind of identify, even if it's like, if you read comic books, right, there's always a mad scientist. If you watch Batman, there's always some disgruntled inventor, you know, up to something. Yeah. Especially if the science hasn't been completely validated or completely invalidated. If it's something that still might possibly be, right. then it makes it even better. Yeah. Right. Lots of uh, radiation and toxic ooze yeah. and things that are like very scary to an eight-year-old. Dear uh, listener, if you want to send your household creatures through a gigantic growth spurt, uh, electrocute them. 
basically, and then give them vitamins, a little bit of electricity. That brings us to our whiskey ratings. Whiskey ratings, how we rate stories here on Whiskey and the Weird. Anywhere from one finger of whiskey to the full fist of five fingers of whiskey. And so I'm going to toss this to Jessica first. What are you going to give it? Let's go with four. I thought it was very fun. The writing was great. The dialogue was very snappy. Um, I would have liked maybe a little actual scare in there, maybe a little more feeling of peril. Um, But overall, really fun. I liked reading it. I probably will not seek out more zapped stories, but I I might read more from this author. Damien, what about you? Yeah, I'm actually going to throw in with Jess. I I would put it at a three seven five because I'm pretty torn between a three and a half and uh, and a four. But fingers. you know, there's only so many yeah. knuckles on the finger, so we're going to go with a. I'm going to round up to four. Mm-hmm. It was just a very enjoyable read. I mean, if if someone said rate this as a as a scary story, I would say yeah, okay, no, it's not two. Scary. Yeah. yeah, it's not very scary. But as far as an enjoyable story that plays that at least fairly sticks well to the theme and incorporates some grotesque elements and does so well. Um, and still kept me laughing. Yeah, I would say four fingers. I'm coming in a little bit lower than you, 3.5 on this one. I did think it was an entertaining story. It just wasn't quite what I was looking for from a collection like this. Okay. So it was a little startling to to read. <laughs> a you know, full when you're, comedy. Right, well, you're you're expecting a certain a certain flavor, and and it doesn't show up, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, this is funny. It, it caught me off guard. That said, I appreciate its inclusion. I think one thing we noted in the in the previous season, um, so many stories in the same vein can get repetitive. Right. And and the humor uh, of this one breaks up the collection nicely. So I'm coming in at 3.5. Well, Jessica, I believe you have our If This Then That for tonight. If you liked this, you should watch The Host. It is the 2006 movie by Bong Joon-ho. It is equally funny, same sort of antics, scientists making bad decisions that don't affect them, but sure affect everyone else. It's also a movie that for 2006 has some like special effects that really hold up and are really fun to watch. Um, I just actually watched it recently and it's, it's great. It's really funny, but it's also sort of a family drama. I mean, even if you didn't like the story, you should still watch the host. I like that recommendation. I've, I've not seen that movie, so I'm going to add that to my list. Oh, it's a good one. It's a good one. You want to talk about scenes of just like realistic reactions to completely insane situations? (laughs) Watch the host. Well, that takes us to the end tonight, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. We can't do this without you. And as such, we're going to beg your indulgence to rate and review us wherever you catch your podcasts. It really does help us. As always, thanks to Dr. Blake Brandis for providing our music. And Jess, what are we reading next episode? Caterpillars. E.F. Benson. It's really, E.F. Really Benson. Fun. Yeah. Awesome. It's a good one. D, where can they find us? If you're the social type, you can find us on Twitter at at Whiskey Weird Pod, at Whiskey Weird Pod on Twitter. If you are over on the Instagrams and decide that you want to look us up, you can find us at Whiskey and the Weird, at Whiskey and the Weird on Instagram. We spell our whiskey with an E. And we hope you do too. If not, then perhaps we're going to send some electric voltage through your body, sending you into a gigantic growth spurt in which you will end up biting a woman's ankle. Well, with that said, I'm Ryan Whitley. (laughs) I'm Jessica Bird. And I'm Damian Smith. (laughs) And we're Whiskey and the Weird. As always, we're inviting you to keep your friends through the ages and your creeps on the pages. Goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next time. Whiskey and the Weird, out.